Hey, Holly. Hey, Dave. How are you today on the What Difference Does It Make podcast? I am doing great today, as always. How are you doing? I am great as well. You know who we're talking about today? <laughs> the great Joan Baez. There you go. Perfect. That's an app description. Yes, absolutely. We are talking about Joan Baez today because there is a new documentary called I Am a Noise, and we were fortunate enough to talk to the three directors of this film who had quite the access to Joan Baez. Three directors, Miri Navasky, Maeve O'Boyle, and Karen O'Connor, as we're going to learn, they got access, intimate access to Joan's world. And this is not just simply a concert documentary. It's a lot more. Karen happened to be friends with Joan. So that was where the start of this was. And they had access to all Joan's archives of footage and family photos and tapes. You know, when you were reading the testimonials of documentaries and they say raw and deeply personal, this is actually raw and deeply personal. And they followed her on her final tour a few years ago. So they got some new footage and it was just fabulous. It is a no-holds-barred look at Joan Baez and her entire career and personal life. Fascinating documentary that is out now, so please look out for that. But before we get into our talk with our directors, how can people find out what's going on with What Difference Does It Make? Well, if you'd like to see some of our conversation with Karen, Miri, and Maeve, check out our YouTube channel at What Difference Does It Make podcast and also on our social media at WDDIM podcast. And we'll put up some footage of our chat with them. Okay, so let's get right into it right now. This is Miri Navasky, Maeve O'Boyle, Karen O'Connor. They are the co-directors of the documentary Joan Baez, I Am a Noise, and they are on the What Difference Does It Make podcast. You guys made a beautiful documentary. <laughs> Thoroughly enjoyed it. Cask, what the impetus for the film was, I know, Karen, you were friends with Joan. I think that's part of it, honestly. Um, I have known Joan for over 30 years. So when she began to talk about the potential idea of a last tour, Mary, Maeve, and I thought there was something interesting there. And following, uh, we imagined it more as a verite, fly-in-the-wall contemporary story of a last tour until somewhere along the process, Joan turned over her entire personal archive. Um, that scene in the film where she goes into the storage unit for the first time, it really was the first time. She had no idea what was there or the massive uh, family archive. So when she turned that over to us, the film cracked open in a different way. We always knew it would be past and present, but with that primary source material, everything shifted. Was this all Joan's idea or was it some prodding? Did, was there, there a discussion going on? Because we were friends, it wasn't even that formal. It was sort of conversation over time that Mary Maeve and Joan and I had. So it really kind of evolved. I'm not sure. What do you guys think? I was just going to say, this is Mary talking. We filmed on and off, Karen and I, earlier. We, The two of us have worked together for a while. Maeve edited and co-produced our last film with us. But this was the first film that the three of us worked together as directors. And so we decided at one point to kind of plunk down in California, where Joan lives. We all went with our families down there for an extended period of time. And her house is like a little bit of a museum. You find these little things all around. There'll be photos everywhere. You find drawings. She has attics with old things in them. And I think that was what led eventually to the storage unit, plus Karen's relationship. But she didn't really know where anything was. Everything was all over the place. We'd pull up something and we'd be like, oh my God, this is blah, 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 blah. Or we'd see a letter when she was 18, when she went to a Beatles concert for the first time, hanging out with the Beatles. It was like a museum. 
I feel like that was a piece of that decision. Is that right? Yeah, I think that's a perfect way to describe it. It wasn't a single moment. It was over the course of time. And then because of the history, having this amazing access to her, there was just an ability to kind of really go inside very quickly in terms of house, all of it. And then uh, this is Maeve here. And then obviously when we actually got the keys to the storage unit and kind of unraveled all of that and Joan unraveled it with us and basically we found all of the artwork that spanned her life. We found the tapes, the quarter inches, the home movies that her dad shot, her mom kept everything, all the letters, the diaries and the therapy tapes. So you can only imagine what a treasure trove of material it was and it was an enormous task to go through it and figure it out and all of that kind of stuff as you know as you said basically it shifted the focus of the film and we realized that we could do both an immersive really kind of like you know inside Joan's life kind of past story that ran parallel to her contemporary tour so it was a really new exciting strand that we were going to investigate which we did and unravel over the course of the film yeah and I'm just remembering actually when we were in the storage unit there would be a box and we'd open a box and it would have all these beautifully colored beautifully drawn envelopes and then you'd realize oh my God, these are letters back and forth between her and David when he was in jail for the course of a year. And so that had its own story. Struggle Mountain was a shack. And we knew shortly that David would be going to jail. I mean, let him come up and, and bust me from what I do. I mean, I am leaving on my scene behind. I am leaving my wife pregnant. I am leaving all those things. And I think that the, the least any man who comes to arrest me ought to do is see that. As a fairly new wife and a, and a pregnant expectant mother, do you think it's worth it? <laughs> Look, I mean, I, I waited for 27 years to find somebody I thought was worth it, and I knew when we got married that he would be spending time in prison. I feel that if he and I continue to be involved in the revolution, which we will, we'll both spend time in prison, so that's all right. Oh, and I think the thing I remember seeing David for the last time was he rode away with feds with his hands cuffed and the big... Glowicky resist the draft sticker on the bumper which the resistance had put on while they were arresting him. So. You'd pull up in a drawer and it would have all these audio tapes that she had kept meticulously organized or another drawer and it would have all of Mimi's material, her sister. So it was like this pieces of a life that you saw all over the place. So I also think that was, it was a huge, huge moment walking into that storage unit. None of it that she had organized. Right. <laughs> well, they were labeled. And, and everything with its own, own integral arc, like practically had a story to tell in and of itself, each piece. It was just unbelievable. So the therapy tapes and the audio, all the photos that you had, was the video footage or film footage there as well, like the Joan and Bob, was that all in there as well? Or did you find that elsewhere? There, there were two pieces. We had decided to film her on the final tour. So we, the contemporary strand of the film, we obviously filmed. Then there was her primary material that her family kept and made, whether it was artwork, letters, diaries, audio tapes, therapy audio tapes, quarter-inch tapes. And then there was the archive, which was a real dig into footage houses or Bob Dylan's management, Jeff Rosen, who manages all of Bob Dylan's stuff. There was kind of a constant looking for as much archive as we could we could gather. She has a vast public archive as well, obviously, for politically, musically, all of it. So that archive itself was also just huge. 
Where is that archive? Actually, this year I, I went to the Bob Dylan Museum in Tulsa. I'm sure there's amazing Joan Baez material there. Does Joan have one? I guess now you clearly can put one together now. <laughs> I think they are putting it together now. So that'll be fortunately for them, a lot of the home movies that her father had uh, had filmed, those were disintegrating. And so we got to transfer a lot of that primary material now and in a great place outside San Francisco. But they are actually now organizing it, I think. And it will land. I'm not sure where it'll land, but it'll land somewhere. That I think it's interesting as well, like her father's, the material that her father shot was really beautifully shot. And he was also a very talented photographer as well. So like there was some really interesting layers to that. Like, I mean, they were such a creative family in that regard. You know, everybody had that kind of visual eye, that artistic eye. Obviously, it blended beautifully for us in terms of like past and present and so on. But it was something that was very that really stood out. So before anybody knew who she was going to be or her what her impact was going to be on the you know the world the country the world having all that material uh, archived the tapes just everything things that we wouldn't necessarily save about our lives it's some pretty good forethought her parents particular her mom saved everything not just for Joan but for Pauline Mimi and Joan she did and she was beautifully organized and had things labeled part of it maybe generational I don't know her they were also beautiful letter writers as you can see they all write gorgeous letters back and forth with beautiful penmanship even that now young kids who have talked about that just the idea of having a letter archive is so kind of rare But yeah, I think it's really her mom was the major force in that from the very beginning, just saved everything and her father too. But I think her mom was the real caretaker of everything. And then it was passed on all of them, actually. But Joan admits that she doesn't have any of it. You know, whatever people sent to her, but she was the star. She's the one on the road, but everybody around her did happily save everything. But I'm struck by it too. I can't get over it. And I think her father recorded everything. Her mother saved it, but her her father documented everything. That's true, Mary. Yeah. Was that in like on Super 8 or what was the film stock? And how was this maintained? Super 8, right? It was Super 8. There was some 16 millimeter. There was some Super 8. There was 8 millimeter. He then had this quarter inch audio cassette player that he worked for UNESCO. So he traveled all over the world. So he would take that audio recorder around him, just audio taping things he saw. He audio taped sounds. So when they lived in Baghdad, the dog barking, the sounds of the street sounds. So there'd be hours and hours of material of these places they had traveled to as well. He was kind of an amazing sociologist, pieces of the world all over the place. Sometimes he'd audio tape dinner conversations that had, you know, that he would have. And he also made audio shows kind of sometimes, you know, with with incredible classical music to start and then the climbing up some mountain in California and this kind of thing. And he had people chiming in. So he'd kind of make a little audio kind of documentary sometimes. I think it's interesting also the parallel because Joan obviously did the audio recordings too. So it was passed on that kind of tradition, um, you know, when she went on the road and she was traveling as a, you know, a young artist in the early 60s and stuff, she was doing the same thing. And it was an interesting tradition of sending letters home on audio tape. I mean, kind of fascinating. Her dad gave her a big TIAC at home. So Mary's right. He was a documentarian in his own way. And Joan is very like him. We have troves of audio tapes where she's at home playing music and talking and mimicry. And it was an embarrassment of riches. But yeah, it's very much in the family DNA with Joan and her dad as well. I mean, we're talking about her dad. What led 
us down a different path completely during this film. All of a sudden, Joan reminiscing or recalling. Was it recalling? Yeah, I mean, she was recalling. Was it from these tapes or what was it that, that kind of jolted her memory? Our ambition in the film was to, I know what you mean by all of a sudden, but to lay down her psychiatric struggles, as she called them, her early demons that started from five years old on with panic attacks and anxiety attacks and the kind of light and dark that is a thread throughout the film. You see these kind of breadcrumbs along the way that there is the outward Joan and then there's the inward turmoil going on. She appeared so grounded and confident on the outside and the inside. She was struggling always with paralyzing anxiety, anguish, all of it. And so by the time you get to the kind of family trauma, we hope we've kind of laid that down in some way so that it doesn't come out of the blue, although it is a big turn. And for us, it was important to represent the family story in that. So to lay down how Joan and her sister Mimi experienced it, how her parents reacted to it, and in that case, very lucky with the archive there that we did have to give voice to her parents as well and use it that way. And so it was a big part of the film to figure out how to do that so that it had context and didn't completely overtake the story and not stay there. She did that work and then came out the other side as she described it. But it was a big challenge for sure. I mean, was this an ongoing discussion? I mean, we have three directors. We have Joan. There's a lot of other people. What was that conversation like? Like, do we want to take this next step? This is not a concert film all of a sudden. This is something completely different. Yeah, I mean, I think we knew from the get-go that there was a cycle. I mean, you open up one letter or one journal or one drawer and you know that there's a deep psychological story going on for her through her whole life from the time she was young. So we always knew that was going to be a part of the film. And as it would be for anybody who's telling their full life story, there's complicated bits, harder bits. I think we were constantly struggling with the balance of that in in a film about identity, about aging, about memory, about a life, about music, about politics. Her life is packed with so many important things. And so we wanted to make sure that it was in the context of this creative, political, musical human. Is that fair to say? I think that was one of the biggest like challenges was to just make sure that the the psychological strand was profound, but also didn't overshadow other parts. It had to be within context. It was very important to understand the family dynamic and meet everybody and contextualize the mom and dad and the sisters early on and have them as part of a strand in the film so that when they return, that we understand them, we know the situation, you know, and so that was really important as well. It had to be nuanced. I mean, we spent a, a tremendous amount of time on that line, actually, and trying to make sure that it did take over because of course it would have the tendency to, for people to be you know as Karen said it shifts immediately and so it shifts gears so it was just a big piece of work to keep it within context and we did have many conversations with Joan about it I mean clearly it was her decision ultimately to reveal this part of her life that she had not talked about publicly before it was a big decision so we had many conversations with her about it she was ready for all sorts of reasons too largely also as she's described it, she wanted, if she's going to do this film, she wanted it to be a 
know, kind of true representation of a full and complicated life. So she wanted to, as she said, leave an honest legacy. And so I think because it was a team where she could, I think, had trust that we could handle that as well. But there were many conversations about it for sure. We are talking about the movie Joan Baez, I Am a Noise. But now we are talking about taking a break. So this is what we will do right now. Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode, available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So, what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right, you'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com pantheon. Buyraycon.com pantheon. Hey folks, Stefan Shirazi and Renee Richardson here from the Metallica Report. And we are proud members of the Pantheon podcast family, where the best of music and podcasts unite. We've got something pretty cool for you. We're giving away an exclusive Metallica merch package worth over $250. That's a whole lot of scary guys, skulls, M72, and other sought-after Metallica swag. And we've made it easy for you to win. Follow and share the Metallica Report, and you're in the game. Go to pantheonpodcast.com slash Metallica, enter your email, and hit that button to be entered to win. And just like that, you're eligible for our monthly exclusive Metallica merch package. And guess what, rockers? You can enter every month. So just do it. And while we love our global brothers and sisters, the lawyers won't let us ship outside the U.S. And we're back on the What Difference Does It Make podcast with Karen O'Connor, Miri Navasky, and Maeve O'Boyle, directors of the film Joan Baez, I Am a Noise. So you mentioned the idea of aging, and I appreciated her honesty. I, I felt her honesty about the aging process and her, you know, where she is now and how she feels now, because it made you realize how not dishonest some perspectives are presented now, but that was felt genuinely honest to me. So you captured it. Oh, thanks. It's rare to find that, I think. And for me, that's an important part, not only just, you know, letting us see her without makeup and who she is and she looks great and all those things, but really kind of physically the voice changes everything about it. It was very moving and I think equally honest to kind of lean into that and really let us see it in some 
totally unguarded way. I think important. It's really important yeah. for women. You also made a conscious decision not to use celebrities or too many other artists talking about her impact on them. I guess that could go on forever, right? I mean, if you, you know, how would you even limit that? It's true. That was a huge decision in the filmmaking. In some ways, it really is a family story. And then because we also set out to, in whatever ways we wanted it to be an immersive story, we wanted it to be intimate. It really is kind of Joan's story in a way that she hasn't told it before, that we wanted to keep it as authentic as we could. So those people who appear in the film are kind of make sense. They have a place in the film, but we didn't think famous people talking about Joan would necessarily kind of bring anything to it that didn't have a place. It would take you out of the story in some way. Is that right? I was going to just, uh, yeah, you, you said it all really. I mean, I just think that the, the problem with someone like a talking head of like a famous person who's kind of chiming in about her incredible musicality or whatever, it would absolutely take you out. It was just, there was an intimacy and a closeness and it was a family story. We wanted it to be immersive. And if you, if you did the other way, it would take you out. It just would, I think. And it didn't feel right to us, even just instinctively, I think, from early on. Yeah, I think we also always talked about it as a kind of visual memoir. So her telling her story, what she remembered, how she saw herself. So that the combination of that and we struggled. We were like, can you only have Joan's voice? Can you just have a 1960s Joan and a 19, you know, 2023 Joan or whatever along the way? We weren't sure. And so it was part of the reason why her archive ended up being so important because it was almost like these different people handing, you know, it was all Joan, but taking you through her life as she went through it. And for you to speak about race specifically, and things that make us so uncomfortable, it was, and to hear it from you is different from like hearing it from me. And so I don't want to cry, so I'm going to stop, but I just want to say thank you. Another one about you. I had a very busy month and a half just thinking. And I decided I was going to start a peace movement. So this is what I'm kind of toying around with in my head. I've been making up speeches, <laughs> these big fiery speeches, getting all these great images of myself, beating 400,000 million people. <laughs> I have to be ready with each thing I do to, like, like if I say I'm going to march out in front of a target some morning, even if nobody else shows up, then I have to be able to do it, you know? And I think I could do it. I, I think they'd show up, but I, but I think the important thing is that I would do it anyway, which I think I would. But I don't know what's going to happen with this singing, <laughs> especially if I end up in jail. But also the, the kind of dig into memory as well was really crucial. And because we had different voices of family members and so on, you you definitely had the layers of memory and the kind of questions around those kinds of things. So it wasn't just Joan, it was also kind of giving context with family members also kind of giving their, their say. What were you going to say, Mary? Just going to say, but it was not easy. Like if only we had a talking head to just say this, what happened in Vietnam and what Jones was you know, it was very, very hard to make a cohesive story with fragments like that. That was both an editing challenge and a interviewing challenge and a archival challenge. <laughs> But in the end, I think, you know, you see Joan and Dylan, for example, together at no, that footage of those two at that moment. I mean, I don't think you'd ever want to 
You don't need Dylan talking about Joan now. Uh, you just see it all there. Or David Harris when he's about to be arrested and going at those moments. Or Joan with Dr. King. It just seemed like if we could find a way to let it speak for itself, it might be worth the struggle. Yeah, we, want, we wanted you to feel like you were there kind of much more, that you were kind of witnessing it almost as it happened. You know, the, the, we were trying to get rid of that feeling of hindsight or looking back, people saying, oh, I remember when, you know, we were definitely going for a, a different aesthetic for sure. That said, there is one name, an executive producer whose name popped up immediately when I'm looking. How did Patty Smith get involved with this project? Patty Smith and Joan are great pals. They've been friends for a long time. Joan was an important and is influence, I think, in Patty's life. She's younger. Late in the process, asked if Patty would step on as an executive producer to kind of help launch it into the world. And she didn't hesitate. She was there in a beat and has been a great champion and great pal. Jones forever and wanted to do whatever she could do to get this film out in the world. So she's just that kind of person. So she had nothing to do with the creative process? No, she's obviously a part of the promotion and getting the film out in the world. She will be with Joan in November for things targeted around the film. And so she wasn't in the early stage of it and now is mainly a champion of the film and has seen it obviously and been a part of it in that way and knows how important this film is to Joan as well and why she's done it at this point in her life. So that in particular, I think she wanted to do whatever she could do to kind of help get it out there. It's already been recognized by uh, the Berlin and Nashville Film Festivals. So congratulations on that. Can I get your Joan Baez origin story from each of you? How did you discover Joan? I discovered Joan through my mom, who was in Berkeley, California, working back in the day in the early 60s. And she was working as a physio over there and came back to Ireland with, you know, a whole bunch of Joan Baez albums under her arm and essentially kept them and, you know, ended up having a family. And we just listened to Joan Baez, like all growing up the whole the whole way. So very, very familiar with her. One of my mom's favorites. And I personally became a fan, by the way, um, working on this film in a, in a much deeper way. I really enjoyed her music. You know what I mean? Like it was just an entirely different excavation. I, I, I loved that actually about the making of it. I mean, similarly, it was generational. My mother and father were both huge Joan fans. And so she was played a lot growing up. My mother used to tell me a funny story of boyfriends making her pretend she was Joan Baez, which was humorous um, <laughs> as she grew up. But I wasn't a great fan until this film. I had met her through Karen. And so I knew her personally before we started doing this film. But I grew to absolutely love her music and her music as an 80-year-old. I love her voice. I love the darkness. I love the huskiness. I love the rawness of it. And watching her kind of lean into that has been amazing. And then I think the film, hearing that old voice and the new voice with the same songs has been kind of mind-blowing. But I've, I've found her concerts intensely moving now. I think that the last tour was took your breath away watching her up there. My mom was involved in the civil rights movement. So I came to her through that, not through her music when I was young, particularly the March on Washington and her civil rights work. And so that for me, my mom was always impressed with Joan's commitment to nonviolence and to civil rights, whether it was started with the civil rights. So I knew her through that kind of brave young woman who was walking the walk and really showing up, not just once or twice, but really committed to it. And so it was only years later, I 
first kind of discovered her music through Dylan, actually. <laughs> so it was largely her sort of moral courage in terms of the civil rights that I first heard about her. Quite a mix. <laughs> <laughs> We're talking about the film. Where is this showing? So Magnolia Pictures is releasing it October 6th. It premieres in New York City at Film Forum. And then it goes, it premieres nationwide on October 13th, all over the country. Yeah. Fantastic. Yeah. Congratulations. It's debuted in all these different film festivals. And we've, I think, what was that? hundred percent on Rotten Tomatoes right now. Everyone seems to. <laughs> Joan is very proud of that, by the way. <laughs> the Rotten Tomatoes, 100%. I've heard her refer to that a number of times. We've had a great festival run. We premiered it at Berlin and then Copenhagen and sort of all over the world. And then luckily Magnolia Pictures came on as our distributor and partner. So we're excited and really thrilled and happy that it's getting out into the world and that Joan's story will be out there now as she experienced it. So thank you for this today. We're glad to continued success with it. Wonderful. Thank you so very much. Appreciate the time. So what an interesting life Joan Baez has led. She's probably a perfect subject for a documentary, right? Because her life of activism and her politics mixed in with her music, it more than inspiring. She feel like she always has led a genuine life. And she's such an interesting, just an interesting character, interesting subject. Yeah, I think genuine is the correct word. This could have been a 10-part series where we delve into separate sections of her career and her personal life. This, unfortunately, was less than two hours long. It probably could have gone longer because after watching the film, I wanted to know more about Joan. So I might need to dig into that rabbit hole. She has a number of autobiographies out. I might have to look into that. I mean, can you imagine... Suddenly, you've become Indiana Jones because you have access to all these archives of Joan Baez's career and personal life and childhood. Like, what a great responsibility. This was such a great representation of her life. I mean, they they touched on the important things. And yes, you want to know more about certain things. But I appreciate all the reasons that they didn't go deeper into some of the topics. Although they could have. And I guess maybe that'll be in the sequels. Part two. The miniseries. The film is... Joan Baez, I Am a Noise, and it is out now. So find it, see it, because it is worth your time. It's a wonderful documentation of an amazing artist. How do they find out material on what difference does it make? Check us out on social media at WDDIM Podcast and on our YouTube channel at What Difference Does It Make Podcast. And you can see some of our talk with these three talented ladies. As well as past podcast episodes. If this is your first time listening to our podcast, welcome. We're thrilled to have you. You can go to WDDIMpodcast.com and sign up for our newsletter to find out what we've been up to in the past month. And we have new episodes every Friday. So click subscribe, like, give us a nice review, do whatever needs to be done. We'll never reach the heights of Joan Baez, but we can, uh, you know, we can... Ride in Joan's coattails. There you go. Ride her coattails. Well, let's wrap up this episode. Thank you to Pantheon Podcast. Thank you to Ginsburg Libby and especially Chelsea Peters and to Magnolia Pictures. Until next week, this is Dave. This is Holly. Check you later. Over and out. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. 
FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. 